things that you have created. It's uh, always a, a daunting thing to preach the Word of God, and it's always a personally challenging thing to preach the Word of God, and you, you go into it and you have... <laughs> You get convicted by the Word and by the Holy Spirit, and that's true every week. But for this week, for some reason, more so for me, I come uh, heavily weighted, and I didn't expect that with this text. Um, But by God's grace, He uh, sanctifies us and moves us to where He wants us to be. So uh, it's a great text, and I'm excited about it, and it is, to me, a, a weighty matter this morning. Um, So let's pray as we go to God's Word. Father, you save and you sanctify. And what a wonderful and glorious truth that is. We cling to that truth. We delight in that truth. And Lord, that truth motivates us to continue here in this place and at this, this time as witnesses for Christ. So we ask that we be strengthened today by word and sacrament and prayer to know that your word is powerful and effective. Place within each heart here by the power of the Holy Spirit a conviction to guard the word from the onslaught of good things that would crowd it out. In Christ's name we ask, amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word, Acts 6, 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. This is God's word. This last week I was approached by someone in the school to take on some more responsibility. I'm teaching at the school and they wanted me to do something else. And uh, praise God I was preaching this text and also for the wise counsel of my father primarily. Uh, I had to say no. I thought this was a good thing and I wanted to do it. But my response to the person who asked me was, I'm having to learn to say no to good things. 
It's hard to do, isn't it? There's so many good things. This is the battle that's taking place in this text. The battle to preserve the ultimate priority of the church, the preaching of the gospel, from being overrun by secondary but still essential priorities. It's a tricky thing. I like the way that John Stott frames this text. Remember, we've been talking about Jesus, the king, setting up his kingdom on earth, and there's the, the battle, the spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. And so Stott frames it in that way as well. He says the, the devil's next attack was the cleverest of the three. Having failed to overcome the church, either by persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. If he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which, though essential, was not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach, and so leave the church without any defense against false doctrine. So the attack that we're dealing with here this morning is distraction. Distraction of good things. That's why Michael was teasing me about my puritanical title. Good versus ultimate, liberating the word from positive distraction. Now, how does King Jesus handle this attack? And the way he handled it, it handles it here is, is interesting. It's through administration. Church government. Sometimes folks think of administration and church government as kind of the necessary evils that accompany all the spiritual things. But we see here, in fact, that church government and administration are spiritual and they are, in fact, necessary and they're spiritual, part of the spiritual battle. They're the way he defeats this attack of Satan. So I want to look by, or begin by looking at the, the threat to the church here. The threat, and the threat is good things, necessary things. Uh, you know the difference between air and oil, that air is compressible, oil is not. So something like hydraulic oil and a tractor and excavator, they can use that to power pistons because it's not compressible, Right. Air, on the other hand, you can squish it and push it into a tank like an air compressor. So if you, have a, if you consider your life and your, your time as a tank and it's full of air, you can pump it full of all these other things that are incompressible, hydraulic oil. And as you do, that tank fills up with oil and there's less and less volume taken up by air. Unfortunately, the preaching of the word feels more like air. It, it's more compressible. It is. I could spend 20 hours a week or I could spend 30 minutes. And the difference from your point of view might not be that huge. Right? But over time it would be. The effect would be great. It is a compressible thing. It feels compressible. Whereas other needs are more like oil. Uh, your employer expects you to spend 40 hours a week at work. Right? That's not compressible. The way the serpent attacks the church is by pumping in more and more incompressible, good, even necessary distractions. And it's his most effective strategy, especially for us in our time and place. Distraction. It's a killer. He thus limits the volume of the word heard and preached in our lives. In Acts 6, we see that a growth spurt is a great time for distraction. The devil to pump in some oil here. 
Remember back in Acts 4, as everyone was selling their possessions, they were giving the the proceeds to the apostles to be distributed wisely among the church. And however, as the church grew, problems arose. One group in particular began to be overlooked. Verse 1, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there's... There's the problem. The Hellenists uh, were Greek-speaking Jews from the dispersion, so the Jews had been dispersed all over the the Roman kingdom, and they were Greek-speaking Jews that had come back to Jerusalem. Uh, They probably didn't speak Hebrew. It's probable that they even had their own sort of synagogue worship services. So it really was the Hellenistic Jews were a, a separate culture. It's not hard to imagine how this kind of mistake could happen. It could have been some kind of prejudice against them, but I think more likely it was an oversight. The apostles were obviously very busy uh, preaching, getting arrested, being beat, right? And the church was growing at such a rapid pace, and most of the people these men knew were Hebrew of Hebrew types. They were Hebrews. They weren't Hellenistic Jews. So it's not hard to imagine how this more fringe segment of the group began to be forgotten. And whether it was of prejudice or neglect, either way, it wasn't right. It was wrong to neglect the Hellenistic widows. Craig Keener says that it it was considered virtuous to be buried in the land of Israel. So many foreign Jews would come spend their last days there, then die and leave a disproportionate number of widows. And remember, they didn't have welfare, right? So it was up to the family to take care of of the needs. And if there was no family, it was up to religious institution. And you can imagine how, say, the... The Pharisees and the Sadducees would feel about helping a Christian at this time. These widows who were Christians probably wouldn't receive much help from from them. So it was up to the Christian church. In other words, neglecting the Hellenist widows was really a life and death situation. This is a severe oversight. So you can see just how incompressible the need feels, right? The the widows have to be taken care of. There's no wiggle room in there. They can't die. How can the apostles sit in a room and pray and preach when, when lives are at stake? See, the needs, the distractions are necessary and good. When I was doing the some interim pastoring at... Uh, Wetmore at our last church, there was a fire in the mountains, as there always was every summer, <laughs> um, all summer, pretty much. And we heard just before service started that some of the firemen needed meals. And so one of the ladies, a, a dear and well-intentioned ladies, latched onto that and jumped up right before service and ran to Sam's Club to get stuff for sandwiches. But it could have waited. Like The food wasn't delivered till later in the afternoon. But the word feels so compressible compared to the tyranny of the urgent. Or compared to what we feel is real work. My good friend, he told me one of his problems in the the church was the, the people felt like, seemed to feel like 
if the work wasn't like blue-collar manual work, it wasn't real work. Right? Studying the Word, preaching the Word, that was some subclass of work, especially in a rural culture. But here, the apostles were not willing to let the good and the necessary balloon out of control so that it suffocated the ultimate. They had to stop the flow of oil into their air tank. They could not let the word of God be compressed. And so, in verse 2, uh, last half of verse 2, it says, it, it, they said, it, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. That's not arrogance. <laughs> it's priorities. Yes, tables must be served. Widows must be fed, especially in that circumstance. But not at the expense of preaching the word. Not at the expense of sinners and saints hearing the word of God. Sinclair Ferguson has a Great sermon. It's terribly convicting if you want to listen to it. It's called Christ's Message to the Church. It's from Revelation 2, verse 4, to the church at Ephesus. And the verse is, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. In the sermon, Ferguson reminds us of the priority of the word, And he points out just how devoted the people of Ephesus were at first to the word. He says that Paul lectured in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Um, Some estimates are in the middle of the day, every day, for up to five hours. Love of the word. He did this for at least two years. He goes in and he, he presses in on reform folk. Man, it stinks when preachers turn on you, right? Like, can't we just, I mean, come on, Sinclair. (laughs) Can't we just lob bombs at the progressives? He prefaced his comment here that I'm about to tell you by saying, I think I'm old enough now to say this. I'm not old enough, but I'm glad he said it, so now I can just quote him. (laughs) It's hard-hitting. He says, I get weary of telling of people telling me they're Reformed churches in the tradition of Calvin until they've answered this question. Do you have preaching every day of the week? Is the whole of Wednesday given to prayer in the church? And does the congregation gather for prayer? Then you'll be a Reformed church. He goes on, he says, And yes, we do not all live within a half mile of San Pierre, the church, it's recognizing there's differences. But how little we do in this area of feeding on the Word of God and loving the Word of God to be taught us. What a nasty fellow, right? Grandpa Sinclair Ferguson just crushing us. Can't believe it. The question of how we might kind of work toward that restoration of our version of that great reformed ideal is a conversation that takes place over many years, perhaps generations. Although perhaps we could pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, revival would come into our own doors and hearts and it would come sooner. I also want to remind us that 
you know, I think sometimes we think of these historical ideals as some kind of like unattainable law of God like kind of thing. Like, like we sinners can't possibly achieve that, but the Puritans, the Reformers, the great men of God were just men. Like it's not some lofty, unattainable standard. We could, there's a lot of room between them and Jesus. We, we could even surpass them, believe it or not. High standard, I know. It's possible. So I want to remind you, perhaps, perhaps we could start here. When we hear such a challenge like we just heard from a respected father in the faith like Dr. Ferguson, what are the objections that arise in our hearts? Like cultural differences, whatever. What are the objections? And then let's examine those objections for ourselves and ask ourselves, are they perhaps just maybe the good displacing the ultimate. Do these objections represent the hydraulic oil, the compressing, that compressing the word of God into the corners of our lives? I often think better by far to live a simple life, work at McDonald's, Rent a two-bedroom apartment than to neglect the Word of God. Well, don't work at McDonald's. They'll make you work on Sundays. You get, you get the point. But it's no wonder that Christianity took place among the slave class or took root there. So do you see the attack here? The, the devil attacked first by persecution, then by corruption, but distraction. In 2021 in America, that's the killer. That's the one that gets the best of us. The tyranny of the urgent, the good things displacing the best things. Martha, Martha, you are anxious about many things. Mary has chosen the good portion. That will not be taken away from her. So what do we do? How do we handle the priority of the word when all these other important things cannot be neglected? It's not an easy thing. It's really a matter sometimes of rewriting the hard drive of our lives, starting over. What are our priorities? So the solution here, I'm calling the solution wise administration. Again, the wise administration of our churches and of our lives is a part of spiritual warfare. I was a little behind planting my garden this year, and when I did, I was rushed, so I neglected to mark things, and I didn't build trellises and stuff, and I planted a bunch of vining plants kind of all in one area. Foolish. And so now, it's just getting out of hand. There's vines going everywhere. i got to dig through and find the cucumbers amongst melons and, and pumpkin plants and squashes. It's just a mess. And I've invested a lot of time over the past four years in composting like a madman. I have great soil health. I did it at my last house, and when I moved, I said, this is my dirt. I'm moving it to my new house. I took the tractor from work and moved the dirt. I have good soil health combined with rains recently. Those plants are going nuts, and they're just all tangled up. I failed in this instance to organize and to provide structure. For my garden. 
And we all know in the spiritual life that the vine and the fruit are the important parts. You know, some people have beautiful garden infrastructure, infrastructure with withered and neglected plants. We can't have that. There are people and there are churches for whom the beauty of the trellis has become the most important part and the life of the vine is neglected. You can't have that. But on the other hand, the vine needs the trellis. The church needs structure. The boat needs the sails if the wind is going to propel it. The church needs structure. It needs a wise administration, especially if it's going to take on the complex task of managing the priority of the word with all the other necessary elements of, of being the church. It's a complex challenge. So the first thing that the apostles did was to prioritize. They knew their mission and calling, and they didn't allow even the most urgent need to distract them. They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God and serve tables, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. How does the church grow? In, in maturity and in numbers, how does it grow? And how is it preserved? And how does it commune with God? Is it through taking care of material needs? Though that's essential, and that's a fine way to build a, a sizable consumer base, that's not the church. It's no way to see souls redeemed. And it's no way to see saints mature in Christ. The Bible is clear that the word of God and prayer and the sacraments are the means by which the church grows. They knew their priorities. There's a great book. I would love everyone to read it. I'm probably going to buy copies for the church. It's great. It's called The Enduring Community. I have a quote from this book. In the section they're talking on the church taking on responsibilities she isn't called to take on. And listen to what they have to say here. They say, perhaps in this way, local churches can avoid the embarrassing situation that often arises when they have taken on the responsibilities for which they are hardly gifted. Why does the local church claim to have expertise in areas where she does not? By what authority does she do her work in the world? It is purely the authority of the word of God giving her a charter to preach the word and administer the sacraments and to oversee the spiritual and physical well-being of her people. Perhaps in the process, the epidemic of burnout among pastors might be addressed. How rare it is to find a pastor whose average day consists of carrying out even a small portion of what seminary trained him to do. With all due respect, today's churches suffer from attention deficit disorder. <laughs> Many have lost their focus. Therefore, the business of a local church is to reclaim her marks, her mission statement, and to commit to them with all her heart. Bad ideas often lead to bad choices, and perhaps the church's confusion about her true nature and mission stunts her ability to influence the world. However, if a generation of believers rose up and reclaimed their passion for a lost and dying world, and if pastors rediscovered the efficacy of the word, began to illustrate the power of the sacraments, and recommitted themselves to the hard and often frustrating work of getting their spiritual hands dirty in the lives of their parishioners, 
Perhaps then the visible church would see the reformation that she so desperately needs. I hope that that whets your appetite to read that book. It's a great, great point. That, that speaks to priorities. The apostles understood the priority of the Word of God, so they prioritized. And the second thing they did was delegate. This was the second aspect of wise administration, delegating responsibility. Again, from the same book, shorter quote, for a man to shake his head and say, someone ought to do something about those poor homeless men downtown, is to admit that he has seen a need and not taken the responsibility to meet it. Instead, he attends the Wednesday night prayer meeting and suggests that the church form a committee to look into the possibility of considering doing something about the poor in his neighborhood. Do it yourself should be the church's response. You notice something about the names of these men that they called? None of them are Hebrew. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They're, they're almost certainly all Hellenists. Do it yourself. <laughs> Incidentally, here it's just interesting. Nicholas is, according to church tradition, the man who started the sect of the Nicolaitans from Revelation. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but it's just interesting. Not relevant to our conversation here, but interesting. This event here in Acts 6 is, I I believe, some scholars suggested it was less so, but I believe it is the foundation of the two offices of the church, elder and deacon. The whole process looks a lot like the sort of election, affirmation, and ordination process reflected in our own church government. Uh, surprise, surprise, I think the one came from the other, right? The apostles say in verse 3, you select them, we'll appoint them. So it's not strict congregationalism. You elect them, we'll appoint them. They give them qualities thereafter, good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And then they, when they induct them, it's more than like, okay, great, here's your duties. It seems an awful lot to me like ordination, laying on of hands and prayer. So, in the church, there's two offices, elder and deacon. Elders are responsible primarily for the teaching ministry of the church and for oversight of the the sheep. And deacons are responsible primarily for the oversight of the physical and logistical, if you will, needs of the church. Deacons don't get much coverage, and they're largely misunderstood. If you grew up in a certain tradition, the people who functioned as elders may have been called deacons, right? But deacons are a vital part of the ministry of the church, and this is important, because they serve this purpose that we see in this text, liberating the ministry of the word from the positive or even essential distraction of other duties. That's powerful. These serving table sort of duties are, are not mundane duties. They actually serve to liberate the word. That's so necessary. Now, there's not a lot of information about the diaconate deacons in the New Testament, but they're clearly very important. Do you, do you remember to whom Paul addressed the letter to the Philippians? 
verse 1 of Philippians, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. It's an interesting introduction, isn't it? And in writing his two pastoral epistles to his pastoral pupils, Timothy and Titus, Paul directs them to put the church in order by installing qualified elders and deacons. And he's careful to outline those qualifications. And the most notable difference in, in qualifications is that deacons are not required to be able to teach. The teaching ministry of the church is primarily the elders' responsibility. Um, that doesn't mean they couldn't or wouldn't teach. And in fact, if a man is, is filled with the Holy Spirit and, and of wisdom, I, probably, I would like to hear that man speak, right? And, and it's interesting... The next couple of chapters, Acts 6, Stephen delivers one of the most magnificent redemptive historical messages in the Bible. And then next, Acts 8, Philip, Philip not the apostle, Philip the deacon, brings the gospel to Samaria and sends it off on its way to Ethiopia. So they could teach, and they, they did teach. The word deacon means servant, or one who, who ministers or serves. If Acts 6 serves as a template, then their responsibility is to oversee, I want to emphasize that word oversee, oversee the stewardship of and dispersal of the church's resources for material needs of the body. Uh, In most modern churches in America, this primarily means overseeing the maintenance of the facilities, which is important, and, and overseeing benevolence. Uh, I remember going to my sister's church, um, Cheyenne Mountain Presbyterian Church, visiting one Sunday, and they had an announcement like, the deacons want people to come this Saturday and help pull weeds. Like, I want to emphasize that the deacons' responsibility is not necessarily to just be the weed pullers. They oversee that. It's the church's responsibility to be the weed pullers. I can only imagine how many people showed up for that, that event. It's not the most in- exciting event. Now, it's different a little bit for us because we live in this sort of odd semi-welfare state. Some of you might state it stronger than that, but our experience is a little bit different. However, wouldn't it be nice if the first place the members of the church could turn for help was the church? The deacons of the church, and they're responsible for taking care of the church. Now, here at Trinity, we don't have any deacons. And to me, that's not unbiblical. Um, We see... Here, that the church grew to an estimated 10, 15, maybe more, thousand before the apostles were overwhelmed and had to kind of split the duty there. Uh, no church is a viable church without elders. But I believe you can have a viable church without deacons because the elders can fulfill both roles as long as they do it well. However, I would love to have a couple of deacons If stewardship and benevolence ministry or what I might call logistics ministry is in your wheelhouse, for example, overseeing the setup of of Sunday morning or benevolence needs, we have needs that we meet from time to time or even helping to think of ways we can reach out with benevolence. If that kind of thing is interesting to you and especially if you're catching that vision of these things being a liberator for the word of God and for prayer. I mean, very often I come in here and help set up, which is fine with me, but our prayer time gets passed over. 
It would be great to have it all set up and, and organized uh, by somebody else so I could focus on, on leading us in prayer, for example. That's one example. So if you're interested in seeking the office of deacon and you think you're qualified and gifted as such, by all means, let me know. I have a, ba- uh, a half-baked plan for diaconal um, training in my mind. I think it would be good. And I would love to see that. I would love to see you served by the church so that you can use your gifts and you to serve the church by using your gifts. So I drift a little bit from my main point here to talk about deacons, but that's a neglected topic, and I think it's important. Um, So my main point here was that the apostles solved the urgency of the problem with the Hellenistic Jews, neither by ignoring or minimizing the problem or just taking the load all upon themselves, but by administrative wisdom, they, they, they delegated the task, which is a beautiful picture of the body of Christ. We're all laboring together toward the single objection, the fulfillment of the great objective, fulfillment of the great commission, but we all have different roles to play in it. I think the old understanding is that there's nine people for every one infantryman on the front lines. Is that something like that? One church, one objective, many members, different roles. So it doesn't apply just to office holders. Ephesians 4 says that the work of pastors and teachers is equipping the saints for the work of ministry. So we should all be laboring together toward this single goal, that is, the propagation of the gospel. The deacons are called to a specific oversight of of logistical stewardship, if you will. Others may be called to prayer, to hospitality, to care for the sick, to giving, to evangelism, uh, to general labor. (laughs) It's all valuable. Some of the work may feel mundane or menial or pointless but keep in mind that even the smallest contribution is part of the the shaft that that is behind the tip of the spear that's plunging into the heart of the devil like setting up and taking down chairs that's that's spiritual warfare you think of that I actually thought about preaching verse 7 seven as sort of like a separate mini-sermon because I thought it's kind of hanging out there. I thought, I'll do two sermons in one, one sermon setting. I thought that'd be interesting. But then I realized that it's actually extremely connected to the rest. Um, so, the, the, verse 7 is the result. The result of careful and wise preservation of the Word. And the result is the freedom and growth of God's word. In verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is uh, one of five summary statements that Luke uses in Acts. And each summary has to do with the growth of God's word and the influx of people into the church. At this point in Acts, we're kind of still in the first stage of the Great Commission, the Gospel to Jerusalem. So it's no surprise here that Jewish priests were being saved. And when you think of the Jewish priests, don't think like the rebellious sort of great high priest and his cronies. <laughs> think like uh, Zacharias, who they, there were many, many priests, some guess up to 18,000. 
priests, and they all did um, basically blue-collar labor, but then they had shifts, and they'd go in for two weeks, and they were responsible for the sacrifices. They also could declare people uh, cleansed from leprosy or something like that. But there were up to 18,000 of these men. So think of those that, that class of people when you're thinking about this, that a great many of these have become obedient to the faith. And we, I, want, I want us to be encouraged by this. A great many became obedient to the faith. That the word bore fruit. I know I want our little fellowship to grow. I want to see a reformational revival across the western slope. <laughs> and I want genuine growth, not just growth by luring, luring consumers with our wares. Right? I, want, I want to see saints maturing and sinners saved. I want us to make disciples. Uh, it's almost hard for me to say. I would love to baptize my first adult convert. And many more. And if, I, if I'm, I'm honest, more often than not, I'm cynical about the plausibility of that idea. And I think it's a sinful cynicism. We often say something like, God saves, we just need to be faithful. Oh, man, that's so true. <laughs> but I wonder if we, if we kept that truth but changed the emphasis. We be faithful because God saves. What if God's power to save was not a caveat, but a motivation? I want to quote a powerful section of a sermon that I listened to from Brian Borgman, who's a pastor in Minden, Nevada. Um, and it includes a Calvin quote, so it's a two for one. I think this is so good and so challenging. And I think it'll be an encouragement to us. He says, You know we exist within a circle of churches that almost prides itself in how small they are. And the more that people are run off, obviously the more effective the ministry. There will be people that get run off. Jesus ran off a bunch of them in John 6. But let's be honest, smallness is not always a sign of holiness and effectiveness. In fact, it's interesting, John Calvin wonderfully addresses those who want the church to stay small in order to keep the small family feeling and to avoid the problems and troubles that come with growing churches. This is Calvin's quote, No trouble, no dislike ought to be so great that the increase of the church does not always lie close to our hearts and that we don't take pains to propagate it. I'll read that one again. No trouble, no dislike ought to be so great that the increase of the church does not always lie close to our hearts and that we don't take pains to propagate it. I want to give you, leave you with three exhortations here. Uh, the first exhortation is to prioritize. The Word of God has to come first in the church, in our lives. Among all the good and necessary things we have to do, it, f- it feels so compressible, but it has to come first. So take pains to, to widely, wisely admi- administrate your life. You may have to rewrite parts of the hard drive to make it happen. <laughs> 
take pains to administrate your life so that the word, especially the word preached and taught, are the immovable stones around which the river of your life flows. Very practical. Start when you get home by taking a big red marker and just striking out Sundays. Make the ministries of the church and Sunday school and worship an absolute and unmoving priority. I mean, it's the Sabbath anyway, right? You're not doing any other thing else, right? <laughs> pump, pump the oil out of your tank. Prioritize. Second, use your gifts. You, you probably not a preacher, a teacher, an apologist, but God has given you gifts that liberate the ministry of the word from positive distraction. You can take up some of those other things that perhaps an elder or a pastor would have to do otherwise so that we can focus on the word and prayer and the sacraments and, and, and shepherding the sheep. Don't think of any gifting as small or insignificant. Every member of the body is significant and essential. And also that even the most immature Christian has the gospel, has the ability to bear witness to friends, to family, and to co-workers, even if we don't feel particularly gifted in evangelism. I don't. You have the gift of the gospel. So remember that, that God saves. Let's be faithful because God saves. Remember that emphasis. It's a motivation, not a caveat. So use your gifts. And then thirdly is till for fruit. Till for fruit. I do think in our day and age, in our place, and with the message that we're trying to preach, the ground we have to till is hard. But let's not just lay in the shade in hopes that the dirt will bear fruit. Rocky ground needs more work, not less. There's a danger in the Reformed world that our churches, being rightly, absolutely rightly committed to doctrinal purity and orthodoxy, become Reformed fortresses rather than Reformed outposts. I stole that from my uncle, Phil, who was here. I talked to him about these topics yesterday because I was wrestling with them, and he brought that, that up. We can, we can. We can become a Reformed fortress. We're so concerned to preserve doctrinal purity that we just internalize and we, we we forget that we are actually supposed to be an outpost. And I think there's a danger that, you know, we have the regulative principle of worship, we have exegetical preaching, we have biblical liturgy, we have it all down pat on Lord's Day worship services, and that that alone represents faithfulness. It doesn't. If we keep it to ourselves, it doesn't represent faithfulness. I should say, complete faithfulness. Those things are of utmost importance, but they don't represent the whole of what the church is called to be. So we need to till the ground we've been given to till, and even if it's rocky, we need to do it with the hope and expectation of fruit, and then trust God for the results. He may give us meager crop, or He may give us abundant crop. That's not our decision, but we do till with the hope of fruit. I'll tell you again, I, I was more burdened by this sermon than I had been by any other for a long time. 
think part of it is because my history and because of the resistance I received against pure Orthodox doctrine, I personally dipped into the Reformed Fortress mindset. With good intentions, orthodoxy and purity are absolutely indispensable. And man, I I feel strong at doctrine, at pure worship. And I feel so weak and fearful and inept at reaching and engaging a fallen world and making disciples. And I'm going to seek help to grow in this area. And, and to grow in leading in this area. I've been talking with my uncle, who, who's so good at it. I, I'm going to seek his help and others. Because I'm seeing more and more, especially as we go through Acts, the go-and-tell mission of the church. We cannot be insular. And don't worry, I'm not going to start pressuring you into a sort of spiritual scalp collection sort of mentality. I, that, I don't believe in that. But I do want us to grow in disciple-making. Because the priority of the word... You notice this text is not about just preaching on Sunday mornings. It's not. The priority of the word, not only preached in our midst, but going out into the world, was the incompressible mark of the church for the apostles. So I pray that we may lay aside all good things that would compress the glorious word of God. Amen.